This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. And we're joined today by Dr. John Kamisis, a professor in the engineering school at Columbia University. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's launched four startups so far. Uh, his lab is about, basically does thin film electronics, which he'll explain what that means, but it basically is taking electronics and putting them in things where it couldn't be done years ago. And he's also one of the most dedicated uh, faculty in terms of interacting with students and making sure the student, and in particular, the undergraduate experience is the best it could be. Dr. Kamisis, thank you for joining us today. So you run the Columbia Lab for Unconventional Electronics, or, or CLU, which I just love. It's one of my favorite lab names on campus. Um, so what kind of work happens there, and what's so unconventional about it? Sure. I, I guess I could start by saying that all labs are supposed to be working on unconventional electronics, because at the university, um, we're supposed to be making new things. And so <laughs> if we were just doing what everyone else did, it wouldn't be that interesting. Right. But um, but my laboratory focuses on thin film electronics. And uh, most people haven't heard of thin film electronics, but it's actually a pretty large area of the economy and also research in electronics. But it's basically a strategy in which we make electronic systems by starting with a substrate and then adding active uh, functional materials to it instead of uh, what most people uh, do in electronics, which is start with crystalline materials like silicon or guide nitride, and then fashioning the electronics out of those perfect single crystal materials. And when I think of like, so the opposite of thin film electronics, when I think of like a standard computer chip, I think most people can picture a chip. Is that is that kind of the model for what's not a thin film electronic uh, piece of electronics? Not necessarily, um, but yeah, the chip is definitely a good example of what's traditionally done. And uh, the reason the chips, one reason they're so small is that um, first they're they're made with single crystal materials, really perfect, uh, and you, you you kind of pay by the area. Um, and so uh, what's great is that Intel, you've probably seen those pictures of wafers. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like making a pizza where uh, you know, my kids do this all the time. They'll take like a, like a pizza bagel. They'll make one pizza bagel in the toaster. And it's just as much work to make 40 or, or a giant pizza once you've heated heat up the oven and do everything. And so same is true for electronics where um, if you're making a microcontroller or microprocessor, um, you know, if you can make it smaller, um, it's much cheaper. There are also some performance advantages. And, uh, and, and so those chips are small primarily because of that. There's no real advantage to making them large. With thin film electronics, the one area where you probably do interact with them, uh, that everyday life constantly, is in displays. Um, because if you think about, for example, uh, your phone or your computer, there's a there's a giant display there, and every pixel there needs one or two or sometimes even six or seven transistors, and that's something that can't be done with single crystal. So you start with a piece of glass, and then you deposit semiconductors on in order to make those displays, and that's really been the area of greatest um, development for thin film electronics. And it's that technology base that we're mostly taking advantage of. Got it. So I can imagine why making a 40 inch television or a 60 inch television might, I mean, how many transistors might one have in something like that? Yeah. So uh, something like 12 to 20 million. Wow. Um, for, a, for a TV. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Cause if you think about it, uh, you know, 4k TV, uh, when we when we throw that word around, it's about four thousand by two thousand pixels, but each of those pixels has three subpixels, and uh, so just right there, that's about twelve million little spots, and each of those absolute minimum is one transistor, and in many TVs there are two. Um, but if you look at, uh, for example, your your Apple Watch, if you have it, the newest Apple Watch. Um, 
which uh, has several Columbia alumni <laughs> associated with it. Uh, there are seven transistors per pixel for each of the each of the spots on the watch. And so, could you even make something like the Apple Watch without or a, or a 4K TV without FinFilm Electronics? Like, is that possible to be nope. done with the old method? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, there are. Uh, yeah, there are simple things, small displays it can be made using uh, strategies known as passive matrix addressing. But in order to get uh, scaling, and, and if anyone's interested, there's a class that we teach on displays at Columbia, uh, 4193, which gets into it in, in excruciating detail. Uh, but no, it absolutely needs electronics in order to provide uh, the, there's, there's this basic limitation of what's called nonlinearity, um, and you need electronics to provide that. So I could see why screens like screens like the Apple Watch or these, you know, 4K televisions were unconventional at some point, but they've been around for a number of years now. And I guess presumably now are the conventional electronics. So what are some new unconventional things that your lab is working on? Yeah, so we also work on some displays, but uh, an example is uh, working on active matrix microphones. Um, so there are some polymer materials, which are piezoelectric, which means that when you apply a force or strain them, they produce an electric charge. And there's been a lot of interest in using them to make sort of a camera for sound or for pressure. Um, and that, it turns out, is difficult to do without active electronics for all the same reasons that displays are also difficult to make without those. And so we're able to take that type of uh, plastic material and at low temperatures and without harming its properties, add transistors and other active electronic systems in order to provide that local functionality. And so what am I, if I'm looking at this, what am I imagining? Is it is this like the size of a car or the size of a book or the size of a postage stamp? Uh, well, what we make at the university is uh, sort of, I'll say the size of your hand, give or take, you know, so, so our standard um, sort of test stuff is about five by five centimeters. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so, but, but, there's um, a part of what we do is to check whether or not things can scale. Some things are advantageous to make very large. Uh, so another thing that we work on is X-ray sensors, and uh, you know X-ray sensors are interesting because, uh, from an electronics perspective, because you can't focus X-rays the way, say, you focus light. And uh, you know when when you think about a camera. Um, a camera is able to take light in, and with lenses, shrink everything down to a small size and detect what's happening on the chip. With x-rays, if you put a lens, it just get absorbed by the lens. Um, so for x-ray detectors, what we need to do is make them very large. And so we have a program with a company uh, that's making phantoms for x-rays. And there we make it, it's sort of the size of the body. So the idea is that you would wrap this um, or put it between the, the source of radiation in the body and use it to make sure that you're getting the right dose. And when you say these are, you know, piezoelectric materials, does that imply that they are essentially generating their own power? So you can now have these microphones or detectors, and it, it, does it decouple them from the need to have a power source then? These can be out in the field or embedded in some other object? Sometimes. Um, the system that we're working on for microphones doesn't have that functionality. But uh, yeah, the, actually, I first got into piezoelectric polymers for exactly that reason many, many years ago. Uh, piezoelectric polymers are really great for that kind of self-powered system. Sometimes that's called energy harvesting. And uh, I think still my highest cited paper is on a shoe that I made, <laughs> which powered a radio. And uh, <laughs> that's... Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the polymers are great for it because uh, they, you know, a lot of other piezoelectric materials are, uh, are ceramic, which means that they're really brittle. And so you can't flex them or, or stretch them, which you can do with the polymer. And uh, so it's perfect for making a shoe. And uh, yeah, every every couple months, uh, somebody asks me for a copy of that paper. <laughs> I love that your lab is printing <laughs> out like you know a a, a a detector for X rays, um, a microphone that can pick up super sensitive vibrations, and a shoe that powers a radio. Um, those that does sound like a fairly wide. Yeah, scope. well, that I, I I actually did that well before I came to Columbia. I mean, that was I was actually an undergraduate when I when I wrote that paper. That's a whole, that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. Do you actually so building on that? Do you feel like your like how has your research changed? I mean, it must be it must be interesting. I guess you're right. All research scientists at a university are always pushing the boundary of knowledge, and so no one's working on exactly the same thing they were doing 30 years ago. But you've boldly called your lab the lab for unconventional electronics, which implies that you really have to make sure you're staying right on that frontier. Um, how is how would you describe how your work has changed over the you know 30 years you've been doing this now? Yeah, well, as engineers, our job is to put ourselves out of business. So, you know, once you've done it, it's done. And either it needs to go, uh, there are two things that you can learn. One is that it's ready for commercialization and to go to big leagues. The other option is uh, that you've learned what you're going to learn. It's fine, but it's time to move on. And uh, so that's, I think, particularly in engineering research, um, really, really important. And so what we've been able to do is to use the same techniques, uh, which is, you know, learning how to make new types of devices, uh, improving devices that already exist, and finding applications for them. So, uh, yeah, the radiation sensing, for example, um, you know, we weren't setting out to make a radiation sensor, uh, but we knew how to make a particular type of transistor. This company, which had some IP, approached us. They were having trouble making the device. We married our, our work, and uh, we were able to make radiation sensor, and then that's an application for something that we're good at doing. Right. So in some ways, so we're always. It sounds like your lab, is, in many ways, is like a you know a, 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 it's a hammer factory. Looking in some ways, it's a hammer. You know, you make hammers that look for nails. Oh, yeah. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Exactly. That's exactly how I describe it. I tell my students we're looking for nails, and and you need to have the right partners. Um, you know, as an example, uh, another area that we've been very active in is in making what's called micro LED displays. And, uh, you know, so that we spun out into a company and that company, you know, runs under its own steam. Uh, but lots of other folks call the company and us asking for this kind of display. One of the areas that's been, I think, really fruitful is using it in microscopes for as a source for super resolution microscopy. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of the same technology. It uses a lot of the same techniques, but totally different application. And of course, what they need is a little bit customized and different than what you would make for a display. And you're talking about Lumio, presumably, right? Yeah, Lumio is the company, and they make an active matrix display. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, fortunately for microscopy, they don't need an active matrix, so it's simpler to make. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we've been able to apply that for this super resolution microscopy in freely moving animals, which, uh, you know, before would require an optical table's worth of, of hardware in order to provide that light source. I think one thing that many people underestimate is, you know, when, when the average person thinks about an, an amazing innovation coming out of a research university, you think like, aha, so the faculty member has the eureka moment or the graduate student does, and then piles of money wash over them. 
and you know instantly they, they are you know oh, there's this company and it goes public and they have a yacht and and and, and so what's the reality been like for you in launching these companies like what what turned out to be much harder than you thought and what turned out to be much easier than you thought uh <laughs> everything is hard i'll say well i mean okay the easy part is that we are fortunate at columbia to have amazing people and uh you know companies often really struggle and i you know my my very first job was at a startup and um, i was the first employee and i was asked to, to find 13 people and that was the hardest part everything else was easy in comparison and i'll say at columbia we have a really great environment with a lot of people that are interested in the same things and that's been the easier part of it um the hard parts i mean it's really tough at the beginning because investors while they're always interested it's it's hard to get somebody to actually cut a check and uh you know they they always want to see more maturity in the technology they want to see more advancement but you also it's really hard to keep the lights on without the fuel to keep people on staff and um i'd say those those are the major challenges Another area that's a little bit specific to New York is that uh, there's there's actually a pretty big barrier, and this has improved significantly in the last 10 years. Uh, but when I started at Columbia, finding real estate that startups could operate in was really quite difficult. And I have to credit the city, the EDC, and, and other groups with really lowering that barrier. There are a lot more options for co-working, and, you know, uh, operations like the new lab, which... Um, really reduce that barrier and that that has almost totally evaporated well i remember uh you know if if memory serves uh lumiode was operating in i think what at Ancremation, two of your startups were operating in what i think anybody would call a fairly unconventional real estate scenario can you tell us a little bit about that and how that happened <laughs> yeah well what we when we first started, it was basically an apartment in Dumbo. And uh, there was a building that was illegally converted into apartments. The city <laughs> cracked down and the landlord needed to convert everybody to a commercial lease. And we were able to jump in to, I don't know that we would ever get this spot in Dumbo for as little as we got it for. It's actually a very nice building in a beautiful location. And uh, yeah, so two starters were sharing, but it was very obvious, like it had been formatted as a, as a one bedroom apartment <laughs> and had a kitchen and everything. It was kind of funny. Um, kind of outgrew that. We we're actually sharing with a third startup also, but uh, they, they would never show up. They basically just stored stuff. There. So this is like the Silicon, yeah, in Silicon yeah. Valley, this would have been a garage, you know, the, the classic garage startup, but like you'd have your own garage and it would open up and it'd be beautiful weather and nice view. In New York, it's three squatting startups in a converted loft. <laughs> it was exactly. And it, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is a real New York story. Uh, you know, how do you, I, I'm a lifelong New Yorker myself. And so I'm, I'm always rooting for the city. And I remember how hard this, you know, 15 years ago when I first started at Columbia after the Boston Consulting Group, it seemed almost inconceivable that New York City would become the the thriving startup center that that it is now. Um, how are some how what are some things about New York that is that you've really enjoyed in terms of being a serial entrepreneur here, and what are some things that New York still needs to work on in the years ahead? Well, what's great is people. Um, you know, we have. Uh, 
uh, there are a lot of universities that that graduate excellent talent, and so you know between NYU, Cornell, City College, Cooper Union, Stevens, it's, it's, you know City University, uh, the whole network. Um, that's one area that's really unbeatable. I mean, we, I understand most people don't wake up in the morning and think semiconductors, let's move to the city. Um, they usually think of Albany or further north. And, and what's great is those resources are also still close, but um, people is number one and number two for sure. I'd say other good things are there's a very dynamic um, scene here, which means that there are a lot of opportunities to meet investors and uh, also to meet partners. And, um, you know, I, 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 up until the pandemic, I mean, I would be in Silicon Valley every six weeks or so, and I could fill three days with meetings, you know, three or four a day. But a lot of those folks come through New York because they'll have a corporate office here, they'll be visiting one of their labs, et cetera. And uh, I don't know that there are a lot of other places where you get that except New York and maybe Boston. Living the life of a faculty member Launching companies, even one, seems like it would be kind of a daunting task. And you've launched how many at this point? Uh, I've been involved with four, but I'm always, I am not in charge of any of them. So I, I'm going to say, like, I'm involved, but what's really made that scale is that each of those has a uh, former student or former postdoc that's 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 in the lead. So that's amazing. Your students, so I mean, I think that's something that many people don't appreciate. Um, the students in the lab, these are not ancillary bit players in the story. The students in the lab are seem like they're really integrally involved, not only in the innovation, but also in helping that innovation get out of the lab and out into the market. Is that right? Yes, they're the most important. They're the most important ingredient. And is this part, when you're looking for students to work in your lab, is that something that is on your mind when you're talking to them in the first place? Not necessarily, although I think there's a little bit of self-selection. Um, you know, my, the, the type of research that we do, I'm not a scientist. And so, uh, you know, yes, some science will accidentally happen, often in collaboration. <laughs> but, uh, you know, most of the projects, the main goal is to build something new that attracts a certain flavor of student. And um, yeah, so if you look at where my students go, they go into industry or and, and I'd say startups is one of those paths. Dr. Kamisas, in addition to launching these startups and doing your research and publishing papers and teaching your academic classes and teaching entrepreneurship classes, you also were involved in helping to launch and run the Columbia Engineering Makerspace. So can you explain to us what is a makerspace uh, and, and what does it feel like to be in it? In terms of the makerspace, uh, yeah, makerspace is a facility in which uh, people can show up with an idea and walk out with a physical object. So it's kind of like a machine shop, sort of an art shop, um, however you want to think of it. And uh, it provides the facilities and the tools and also the community and the advice that you need in order to, to do that. And so uh, Columbia didn't have one. And uh, yeah, I was really fortunate to uh, get the backing to start one. And it, it, you know, after a couple of years of operating it sort of on a, on a shoestring, we were very, very fortunate to have a few alumni um, commit significant resources to renovating the space and, and expanding it. And uh, today it's a really vibrant, uh, active, and very beautiful space. You know, it's amazing. I've, I've spent a bunch of time in there over the years. 
And a couple of things struck me. I mean, first of all, for people who can't really imagine this, this is essentially the size of a medium-sized classroom, or at least it used to be. I think you've expanded since then. And it's filled with these incredibly intimidating machines to a layperson. So 3D printers and laser cutters and routers. And, you know, I would think that this would be a heavily guarded fortress because you would, God forbid, you wouldn't want someone to break the machines and you wouldn't want someone to hurt themselves. And I know people do get training, but what is amazing is it feels kind of like a Starbucks when you're in there. Like everyone's in there, it's humming, there's students wandering around. Some people are making, you know, an incredibly, uh, an, an incredibly, uh, you know, richly scientific device for a start they want to launch. And some of them are making a cup holder for their bicycle. Um, so, so it's hard, like, do, do you feel like this is something that has just become integrated in the in the engineering school student life at this point, or is this still something you need to proselytize about? Yeah. Uh, so I think within the engineering school, so, so uh, okay, I'll say a few things. Um, so yes, what you described is exactly what we're shooting for, which is that you anybody can make anything for any purpose. And so if it's a research purpose, if it's an art project, if it's goofing off, if it's learning how to use machines, all equally valid. And uh, again, thanks to the support of, and I really have to credit Mary uh, Boyce, our uh, dean at the time. And soon to be well, provost. For another week or two. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, our dean for another week or two. I don't wanna. <laughs> um, she, she really just bought into it. I mean, she knew exactly what, 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 what we were, what I was thinking. And so she, she basically snapped her fingers and she gave me the count number. And it's like, all right, we can, we can set it up this way, which is great. Um, in terms of uh, the, the other part is, yes, it kind of runs itself. And that's part of the fun of it um, because students train the other students and that builds the community. And, uh, you know, people really invest a lot of time and energy and emotional effort um, into it. And that, again, is, is part of what makes it what makes it amazing. And then we have to support that with other um, you know, with, with the other structures, like, for example, navigating environmental and safety and all those other things, which which are important as well, um, but which we have been able to, to sort of triangulate, um, you know, with the right level of staffing, supervision, facilities, you know, federation of, of the space, things like that. But yeah, but it did start as a classroom. I mean, they, they basically gave us a classroom and they said, uh, you know, uh go nuts <laughs> and we did right. and uh you know when we ran out of space we were fortunate to be able to uh essentially get the the, the dean's office had like a temporary office and they um again together with the with the with a very generous gift uh we're able to renovate that into the space that you see today most faculty at Columbia live somewhere near campus. I mean, I, I live in Brooklyn personally, so it's a long commute for me, but most people, most of the faculty seem to live, you know, within a few blocks of campus. But it is very few that literally live in the dorms like you do. Um, so you and your family, your family of six are living in one of the student dorms. Um, why'd you choose to do that and what's that like? Yeah, we're very fortunate to be um, one of the, the, what we're known as the faculty in residence. Um, on campus at Columbia, and we live in Hartley Hall, which is actually the oldest dorm at Columbia. Um, yeah, we chose it. Uh, you know, my wife and I both uh, actually had a lot of experience, I'll say, living in dorms. When I was a graduate student, I also uh, lived in a dormitory, uh, and uh, as part of that, supervised um, you know programming and, and and met a lot with the students. And um, yeah, it, it seemed like a great opportunity, and it has been really both a lot of fun for us and also really professionally rewarding. 
Um, and so, yeah, so living in the, in the dorm is, it's, it's a lot of fun. We mostly help manage programming. Um, and so a lot of what we do is invite people to come and meet with the students. And actually, uh, you mentioned Makerspace earlier. Uh, the Makerspace was born in one of those meetings. So I invited Mary when she was still new dean. And so she came and the engineering, uh, you know, the RSVPs go out and, and, and I don't know, maybe 70% of the students that showed up were from the engineering school, which is not typical. Uh, the, the undergraduate population is uh, is only about a third engineering students. Um, but in any case, so they all showed up. And uh, one, of, one of the questions was, why don't we have a makerspace? And Mary looked at me and she's like, we don't have a makerspace? And I, I shook my head and she said, okay, okay all right. We'll make one. That's, <laughs> so, that's fantastic. That seems very so much like Dean Boyce, like just like, oh, there's a problem. I'll go fix it. <laughs> that's exactly, exactly what she's like. It's it's kind of funny. And and I, you know, it's funny because I like bumped into her about a month later on College Walk. And I was like, Mary, about that makerspace. She's like, Oh yeah. Do you want to read it? And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And she gave me the account number and you know, we ran from there. And that was pretty much it. Dr. Kamisis, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. It was really great to chat.